Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for this mysterious, faithful grace that you say to us in your word that all scripture is God-breathed. It continues to be the means through which you breathe out your revelation upon us. Continues to be the means by which you correct, rebuke, teach, and train us in righteousness that we might be equipped, restored, to live as your people. Thank you for Curtis, the ways that you are at work in him, the ways you've met him in his study over this season. And, and we just lift him to you and ask that you would breathe upon him. You would settle his soul, his body in this moment. You would give him faith that you have purposed this journey and this morning and that you are going to speak through him and through your word to us. Open us up, Lord. Help us to put down our impress me or I will judge you attitudes to just receive what you want to give us today. We need you, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. We need your voice, your revelation, your ministry, your grace today. So open us up to receive from you through your son. Amen. Good morning, friends and family, brothers and sisters. Let me start with a question. How many of you remember high school photo day? Now, how many of you remember high school photo day when you had the giant zip that showed up right here on your forehead? Anyone remember that? I am very aware that I have a mark on my forehead. Many of you have pointed it out to me, and I just want to name it and acknowledge that I might be a bit distracting here. So here today, guys, here. And I'll just say there was a curious incident involving myself and a bathroom door this week, and I can tell you about it later, but it is a fairly short story. My name is Curtis, and my family and I have been a part of Lambrick for around 15 years. It's been a while. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the elders in this church, and I've currently served, uh, or I currently serve as the chair of our board. Just to let to know, or for you to get to know me a little bit more, I'm married to Danielle, if you don't know. We're in the front row this week. Uh, Danielle's there with Lucia, my 20-year-old daughter, Elias, my 17-year-old son, and Everett, who is 14. And this marks the first Sunday that our family has been together in church for a few months of, uh, as we've been away uh, on vacation, and our kids have been working at Camp Homewood this summer on Quadra Island, and I just want to say it is really good to be back. 
It is really good to see all of you this morning. You've become a family to us. Lambrook is an important part of our family's life. It's a place where we've experienced God at work in our own lives and in the lives of others. It's a place where we've made some of our closest friends, a place where we've been ministered to and where we've found opportunities to serve others. And this being September, it's the start of a new month. And as uh, Scott has pointed out already, chances are, or actually I think we know now, that there are some new faces in the room and online. Uh, We've all experienced the awkwardness of being the newcomer. I certainly have. And I just want to call out that it doesn't last forever. Uh, For those of you who are new here online, in the room, I really hope deeply that you experience a warm welcome here today. And I hope that we'll see you again. During the week, I work as a clinical pharmacist in the intensive care unit at Victoria General Hospital. That's my day job. And most people, when I say that, they don't really have a mental image that comes quickly to mind about the type of work I do. Most people don't think about pharmacists working in hospitals at all, let alone the intensive care unit. So it's okay if you don't have that picture. Put very simply, I oversee medication use in the sickest and most complex patients in our hospitals. Uh, And I make sure that they're getting the right medications at the right doses at the right time and that we aren't seeing new problems emerge because of medication use. Uh, I also have a role in conducting research and and, uh, providing experiential education. I take learners in my job commonly, uh, people who are learning about clinical pharmacy practice. Lucia, my daughter, describes me as a drug dealer for the nearly dead, uh, which (laughs) has some truth to it. I have a unique job, and I am really thankful for it every day, nearly every day. Uh, The opportunity to help people, often in their darkest hour, really is a privilege. But I have to say, the stories of hardship that bring people to the ICU can be unimaginably brutal. Uh, This is relevant for me to say to you today because my day job, probably just like your day job, has, it shapes how we see, how we read scripture, and today, especially the Psalms, uh, which I'll be speaking from. Life can be incredibly hard, much harder for some than others. Life doesn't seem fair, And worship of God fundamentally should not, it cannot, spring up just from happy times and the pleasant feelings that we, that are fleeting. But I'm jumping ahead a little bit. The passage I'll be preaching on this morning is Psalm 134, the final psalm of the Psalms of Ascent. And my sermon is the the final sermon in the series that we've been journeying together through this summer. Uh, that we've called Steadfast Songs. As we've heard from each of our speakers, the Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms, or songs, that the Israelites would have sung on their triannual pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would have done this for three times a year uh, for the three Jewish feasts, two in the spring for the, uh, the, festival, or the feasts of Passover and Pentecost, and then one in autumn for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Uh, I want to give a shout out right now to the preaching team who have taken us on this journey for the last uh, 15 weeks. Scott, Aaron, Janet, Carly, Priscilla, Kate, Siobhan, David, John, and last week our own Moldova team. Thank you to each person who has stood up here and preached. I think I can speak for all of us in saying your words have blessed us, deeply blessed us, and have brought us life. And I think that's true for, for this church. And I think that these were, the words that have been spoken up here are going to carry forward into the fall and into the months and years to come. I feel it's an incredible honor to be standing here preaching to you today on this, on this last capstone Sunday, um, giving you this capstone message, bringing us home in the sermon series, but also pointing us home in the journey that each of us is on. So just a bit of a recap of the journey so far, some of the key moments on the road trip. We started in Psalm 120 with a turning point when we see the lies that our lives are surrounded by as we sojourn in lands foreign from God and we decide it's time to go. So recall verse 5 in Psalm 120, how I suffer in far off mess check. It pains me to live in distant Kedar. Along the way, we've been reminded that God is where we find our faithful protector, not the mountains around us or anything or anyone who dwells in them. We've been reminded of our call to worship God, not because we feel like it, but because our decision to worship him orients us properly before our creator. We find our place as servants of our master awaiting his mercy. We've heard about the raw heartache experienced by God's people, clear evidence that life does not always go easily for his servants. Despite his promise to protect us from evil, this protection being like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Throughout each psalm, we've been on a journey toward Jerusalem, our hearts oriented like a compass, bearing true north toward God. And today, we've reached the final psalm, and we've arrived in Jerusalem. So without further ado, let's read from Scripture, our passage for this morning. Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. This is from the, the NIV, and I'm going to be flipping between using a few different versions this morning, uh, mostly the ESV, and you'll see why in, in a few minutes. So from the ESV, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, who made heaven and earth. Let's pray together.
God, you have been doing a work in me for the last few months as I have been thinking about this message, as I've been reflecting on how I can preach your word to the people in this room, to the people online right now. I have my own hopes for how my words will land today. And I lay them down and I ask you to do your work through me. I pray for your will to be done, for your word to be spoken today, for your word to land, to be burned in our hearts. Pray for those who struggle like me on Sundays just like this to stay focused. I pray that you would draw our attention to you this morning and let us hear only from you, not me. Let us hear from you. Pray in your name. Amen. There are only three short verses to the psalm that, that I read this morning. And when I mentioned that I'd be preaching on this psalm to a friend, he said something like, well, I guess your sermon's going to be pretty short. <laughs> and I thought the same for a minute. And it might have been true except for this being the word of God. So there's that. Um, to dive in together, let's start by noticing the structure of the passage that I've read and some of the contextual details. I think they're important. The psalm is made up of three, three verses, but two parts. Part one starts with the invitational word, come, in the ESV and the NRSV. And if you look at the King James, you'll, Kim, King James Version, behold is the word. These are important words. I think... Um, it's, uh, it's regrettable that the NIV didn't actually include this in their translation. Come, behold. These words introduce some urgency to what we are called to do. Come, we need to give this our attention now. According to some commentaries, part one and part two of the psalm represent a call and a response, spoken or sung by two different parties. So you can imagine the Israelites are in Jerusalem. They've arrived. The first two verses, part one, the call to worship, were likely addressed to the priests and Levites in the temple, those whose role it was to serve there, as the pilgrims were actually getting ready to leave Jerusalem in the early hours on their way back home to avoid traveling in the, the heat of the day. The final verse, or part two of the psalm, was the response or benediction that was addressed to the pilgrims as they were leaving. I have no idea what tune this would have been sung to. We're, we understand these are songs that would have been sung. But you might imagine this exchange of words from inside and outside the temple. And there's a rhythm, a cadence here to, in the exchange of, of verses to pay attention to. Come, bless. Bless. Twice we hear bless and be blessed. We read this as an invitation to us today because, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 5, 2 verse 5, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are priests. 
We are the priests. As Christians on this side of death and resurrection, we find ourselves on both sides of the call and the response, calling one another to worship and pronouncing words of blessing on each other. So that's the structure of the whole psalm. Now let's look at the individual verses. I've arrived at my first glitch. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Or in the ESV, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I have considered this phrase for hours as I prepared for today. I see a photo like the one that you were looking at right now and can just imagine myself taking an early Saturday morning in with a friend. It's warm. I'm on my bike with a good cup of coffee just a few kilometers down the road feeling a deep sense of gratitude for the things that make me feel especially happy. I can see my family looking at me, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'll be honest and say that I started my my preparation for the message today as I heard, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, every time I open the psalm, with an uncomfortable and strained, or recognizing this uncomfortable and strained relationship with this phrase that I've lived with for years. It's not that I've had a philosophical objection to the idea of praising God. He's God, creator of me and all that's around me. Of course, he's deserving of praise. But the thing is, I've often heard the, the phrase, praise the Lord, as a religious nod to the good life, a cue that life's going well, pleasure is on the increase, good things are happening, and there's something to be grateful for. Think back to the hashtag blessed life that Scott mentioned in, a, in his sermon on Psalm 130 back in July. That's exactly what I'm, I'm talking about. I don't spend much time on social media, but if I were, it'd be this picture I'd put up on it. I'd post it with myself on my bike and my buddies drinking coffee. Praise the Lord. I got a great parking spot in front and I barely had to walk to get here. Praise the Lord. My business is having a great year. Praise the Lord. My kid got accepted into the school she applied to. Praise the Lord. I got a great deal on airline tickets for my next vacation. At its best, this phrase is a reflection of a deep instinct to express gratitude to the giver of good things. There's an acknowledgement that I'm not responsible for the good things that come my way. And there is truth in this. However, I am suspicious of the surface deep conditional nature of the way we use this phrase, of the silence I hear when the penny drops and disappointment arrives. What happens to praise the Lord then? 
Isn't there as much of an imperative to praise God in the darkest moments of life? I've been working on this sermon for months, and I really started to dig in during my vacation in August, which coincided with the escalation of BC's worst wildfire season to date. Our family traveled to, to Fernie in the southeast part of the province, and pretty much after the day we, after we arrived, we woke each morning for a week to the smell of smoke and the sight of thick haze, obscuring the view of the mountains. When you looked at the BC wildfire map on our, on our phones, which we did every day, thinking about the worst case scenarios that might threaten our, our return trip home, we're gonna have to go through Alberta, we're gonna have to like drive to Texas and then come back around. Uh, it was difficult to resist a sense of growing anxiety. We appeared to literally be surrounded by fires described on the province's wildfire app as out of control. Praise was not my natural response. And I don't want to overstate things. I was on vacation, our family was safe, we were in no immediate danger, and our house back on the island wasn't about to catch on fire. But the daily headlines that we couldn't resist looking at incessantly reminded us of the escalation in climate-related disasters and their toll on human lives, and that has an impact. What I felt, what I felt was more like, God, where are you, and when will you do something? We've seen in the Psalms of Ascent words of deep lament right next door to the words of jubilant praise. This is not the stuff of gift store trinkets, slogans, and pleasing cursive on pretty coffee mugs. The call to worship extends way, way deeper. Because God is good, God is always good. Praise the Lord when my heart has been broken. Praise the Lord even when the opportunity, when opportunity has passed me by. And I feel like I've taken a wrong turn way back on the road I've been walking on. Praise the Lord, even when I receive a devastating diagnosis. Praise the Lord, even when dark clouds of depression and anxiety surround me. Praise the Lord. The words still ring true when I choose to worship the creator of heaven and earth and know that he is making all things new again. Praise the Lord is not the trite statement we have sometimes turned it into. It's not code for life is working out for me right now. God's most significant revelation to me in preparing for this morning happened when I started to look more closely at the different translations of this psalm I started to notice the central word in the psalm, the one that gets translated as praise in the NIV. The original Hebrew word that it comes from is baraka, which re refers to a blessing. This is why a number of translations, including the ESV, include two calls to bless the Lord. And you'll hear me read today, bless the Lord, before the response of may the Lord bless you. Again, note the rhythm. Bless the Lord, and may the Lord bless you. 
The word bless is super important. Probably the most important word in this psalm and in this sermon. And it's been the word and idea I've struggled the most to wrap my head around in preparing for today. How, do, how, do you, how does one put into words the mutuality of blessing when the two parties, God and us, are infinitely unequal? How do I bless or benefit God? In the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson describes the idea that the Psalms of Ascent begin in Psalm 120, describing an act of repentance. The Hebrew word is teshuba, or turning. And they end in Psalm 134 with an act of praise, or baraka. What he's describing, and what you'll see if you go back and trace all of the Psalms of Ascent, this is your cue to load up the sermon reruns in your podcast app, is the arc of our own spiritual pilgrimage. Peterson says that Baraka describes what God does to us and among us. He enters into covenant with us. He pours out his own life for us. He shares the goodness of his spirit, the vitality of his creation, the joys of his redemption. He empties himself among us, and we get what he is. That is blessing. The connotation of the original word bless is that of kneeling down in homage to the other. Peter De Peterson describes God getting down on his knees among us, getting on our level and sharing himself with us. This is the eternal life. Life in the fullest that is available to us through Jesus. And we respond to God, we bless God with what we've been given. It is an exchange of the contents of the soul, as per Johann Peterson, who's quoted by Eugene Peterson. It is an exchange of the contents of the soul. Charles Spurgeon paraphrases the phrase, bless the Lord, as to think well of Jehovah and speak well of him, adore him with reverence, draw near to him with love, delight in him with exaltation, be not content with praise, such as all his works render to him, but as his saints, see that ye bless him. I find this helpful to understand how I might bless the Lord, but also incredibly powerful to think that God blesses me by speaking well of me. Think back to last summer's Fruitable Sermon series where Sue Priestley created the mental image of God holding our face between his two hands, looking us in the face and loving us the way we do our own children, but better. There's more to this reading of Psalm 134 in verse 3 that I'll come back to in a few minutes, which contain some extra good news for us. But for, first, let's pause to consider another curious line in verse 1. The invitation to worship is, is extended to the servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Why mention ministering at night? It's kind of weird. Why not invoke the daylight when we've been restored by sleep, have fresh energy and can see things clearly? 
It seems the psalmist is making a point about the call to worship constantly, even when it's difficult to stay awake, even when our feelings do not naturally draw us toward worship. It's a choice we make. This isn't the first mention of nighttime in the Psalms of Ascent. Recall in Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. It's not that nighttime is prime time for worshiping God. It's a time often to endure, not to relish. It strikes me that this curious phrase serves as an urgent invitation to us to give praise to God even when we feel we've done enough, when we are exhausted, when we feel surrounded by darkness and long for the daylight. Come, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. The invitation to worship continues in verse 2 and now includes a command to lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. The ESV differs slightly by saying to lift up your hands to the holy place. The holy, holy place probably a reference to the inner sanctuary which was off limits to most, giving a direction to where our hands should be lifted. Some of you may think the whole practice that we call worship a bit strange. And I get that worship is not just the 20 minutes that we spend collectively singing songs together with the worship band on Sunday mornings. But that is what I'm thinking about right now. On a completely objective level, there is something a bit strange about singing songs to an unseen being. There's something a bit strange about speaking in audible words of prayer and not expecting necessarily an audible response. There's something a bit strange about closing our eyes, lifting our hands upward for no apparent reason. So what do we make of Psalm 134's call to the worshiper to lift up his or her hands? John Calvin asks, for why do men lift their hands when they pray? It is, is it not that their hearts may be raised at the same time to God? The idea is that the spiritual follows the physical. Recall the invitation to worship God, specifically mentioning those who serve at night, those who face a challenge and who really need to choose to worship. Worshiping God is a choice we make, and even the simple, perhaps strange, intentional, physical action of lifting our hands sets our hearts in motion. Raising my hands in worship doesn't come easily to me. I wasn't born a charismatic, though maybe I'm on my way. <laughs> but it means something to me, and it changes me. When I do it as a physical act of both surrender and offering. When my hands are open before God, I'm offering up my most immediate tools for protecting myself with. I'm vulnerable. They are what I do my work with, and I can't do anything else with them when they're held up before God. 
So when my hands are raised before God, it's both a statement of surrender and offering. My hands are also what I receive with. When my hands are physically raised, I'm reminding myself that God is the source of blessing, and from him I receive. It may be uncomfortable for some of us to adopt this practice, but I want to make the point that its practice is biblical. It originates from Scripture. I don't have time to go through all the verses that reference raising our hands to God, but they are, there are many of them. It's not just an invitation to respond to you when you feel moved by that song that the worship band nails on Sunday morning. And I feel that too. Or something to ignore when you feel emotionally flat. The spiritual follows the physical. And the physical follows the choice. Moving on to verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who is the maker of heaven and earth. I'm going to use Zion and Jerusalem interchangeably. They are the same place. May the Lord bless you from Zion or from Jerusalem. Not in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem. God's blessing isn't something just for those in the temple. It goes outward. It radiates it follows the Israelites to the places where they come from. This is reminiscent of another time when we read of God's blessing being projected outward. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And after Jesus' resurrection, when the apostles ask him, if now is the time he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, he says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel or the good news of this passage. God's blessing goes out from Jerusalem. It was his plan all along and what Jesus made possible through his death and resurrection. And returning to an idea I alluded to earlier, recall what I mentioned about what it means for us to bless God. That one definition of the word bless is to speak well of. So according to this passage, at least one aspect of God's blessing is him speaking well of us. Pause and reflect on that. God blesses us by speaking well of us. Think of all we do in our day-to-day -day lives for the praise of those we esteem. Parents, mentors, teachers, supervisors. Now reflect on the reality that the Lord of the universe knows us, truly knows us, and would speak well of us. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you. These words hold incredible power. Finally, we read that this blessing is from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the most famous city in the Bible. Obviously, this was a physical destination for Jewish pilgrims. 
a brick-and-mortar city that contained the temple, God's holy place. But what is the significance of Jerusalem to us today? I think there's significance to the fact that the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of the universe and the galaxies within it, chose to reside in a specific physical location with us on earth. God had GPS coordinates. It's a crazy idea. And aside, if you've been to Jerusalem, you'll know that the mount in Mount Zion seems like a bit of hyperbole, with the highest point being around 765 meters above sea level. This is hardly a mountain. <laughs> mount Zion is more like a big hill than a mountain, surrounded by similarly sized hills. It is a super fascinating city. Don't get me wrong, and it has a rich and complicated history. For me, though, there's a significance to the fact that the grandeur of Jerusalem, or the lack thereof, isn't the point. Jerusalem 1.0 isn't the final version. And again, like so many other instances in the Bible, we see God using the unexpected, the unpredictable, to manifest himself. Back to the point. Though the source of the blessing spoken of in verse 3 is the Old Testament city of Jerusalem, a physical place on this earth, this city has a future existence that is unspeakably more beautiful. We read about it in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And further along in the same chapter, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The significance of this, I think, is huge. This passage tells us that our pilgrimage takes us directly into relationship with God himself, with no dividing walls or intermediary to approach him on our behalf. God is the temple. So I'm going to take us home in, in the sermon at this point. Psalm 134 is about what waits for us at the end of the pilgrimage, after the initial move of repentance or turning in Psalm 120. It reveals a purpose for our journey. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Psalm 134 describes what we were created to do. And, we dem and demonstrates the exchange of blessing between God and ourselves. We bless him, he blesses us. This is good news. This is the best news. 
It's September, third, I think. Not technically the end of summer, but we all know that it's here. For many of us, it's the time of returning from our summer adventures, our journeys to other places, our recreational pilgrimages. We've been on this pilgrimage through the sermon series over the last 15 weeks as well, and we've reached the end. But things don't just stop here, just as they didn't for the Israelites. We're starting new school years, new jobs, returning to old jobs with restored energy, hopefully, new ideas. And to use a phrase from J.A. Moiter in the New Bible Commentary, we are on a pilgrimage of the heart rather than the feet. In this final psalm of ascents, we're reminded of what blessing truly is and where this blessing comes from. We bless God when we speak well of him and acknowledge him as our creator and our source of life. He blesses us with the fullness of life when we do so. And his, isn't, his blessing isn't reserved for those in a physical, physical place. It follows us into our homes and our workplaces and we become a blessing to those around us. So in closing... According to the scholars I've read in preparing for today, the call for God's blessing in the final verse of Psalm 123 is a pretty obvious reference to a slightly longer but very familiar blessing from the book of Numbers. I'll read the words and I invite you to imagine the voices of priests shouting across the temple walls, pronouncing a blessing on the pilgrims in the early hours as they were preparing to leave Jerusalem. Until next time. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims, as followers of Jesus, we are members of the holy priesthood. And the call to worship, to give and receive blessing, is for us. This short little passage is packed with good news gospel. Come, bless God, now and always, not just when we're feeling it, recognizing he is the very source of life. Come, surrender, and receive blessing, which is life and love in its fullest sense from our creator.